Let me tell you about the first time I played Monopoly with Jamie and his brothers. To set the scene, as a child and a teenager, I played hours of Monopoly. I loved it. My friend and I, Samantha, we would honestly set ourselves up over summer and Monopoly was one of those games that we would just camp out playing and it would just go all day, over days and weeks sometimes. We absolutely loved it. So coming into this moment, I'm thinking, yes, I love Monopoly. I'm quite good at Monopoly. I'm super excited. Jamie's been half dead on the couch all week because he had this terrible cold. And I was like, excellent. Here we go. And so we started. And it doesn't take long before I realize that what I'm about to encounter is real Monopoly. You see, Samantha and I had a whole bunch of these extra rules that we used to play by. They were unwritten rules. They were just kind of courteous things that we used to do. These rules included things like, if you were the first to land on, say, Mayfair, then you automatically had first dibs to Park Lane. You just had to wait to land on it. But, like, you would never buy someone else's colour because they already had the first one, so they got the rest of them. <laughs> That's communism. <laughs> The other, the, other, the other thing that we did was that we were always loaded. In fact, we had to like print extra money to add to the bank because the bank kept running out and we needed more money. So we had like probably 50 extra $100 notes in order to keep us in the supply that we needed for every time we passed go. Now, this was before I studied macroeconomics and I found out what happens when governments print extra money just to keep everyone going. So, yes, as you can see, I had a slightly different version of Monopoly. And as we went into this game with Jamie's brothers, I realised why it's called Monopoly. Um... All of a sudden, I realized that the game ends when people go bankrupt. And the idea is that there's one person left at the end. Usually, Samantha and I would just wrap up the game when we felt we were done. We were rich enough and we had enough houses and hotels and we were, we were done. It was great. And so initially, I'm trying to keep up. I'm like, oh, okay, competitiveness. I can do this. I can sort of work out a new way to play. And I'm just sort of like, yep, right, take everyone down on my way to the top. And partway through, I realized this is just not going my way. And after I had sort of gone bankrupt, mortgaged a few houses, and then just sat in jail, because that's the only way to prevent yourself from having to pay out, I then just wanted this whole thing to end as fast as possible and realized that on one more lap around the the board, I'd be out and we could just call it a day. And at that point, I vowed that I would never play Monopoly with those boys ever again. And to this day, we've never revisited it. You see, there were two crucial ingredients in the game of Monopoly that Samantha and I had eliminated. Scarcity and competition. And when we come to look at the concept of consumption, these two elements are really important. Competition and scarcity are two important factors that make our economy go round. We live under a free market consumer ideology and without competition 
And without scarcity, it doesn't work. Consumption is, in fact, an economic concept. And its definition is the use of goods and services by households. It is essentially the satisfaction of human wants. So consumption has two bookends. Firstly, the desire, and at the other end, the satisfaction of that desire. The desire sets us on the quest, and the consumption leads us to the point where we're satisfied, and thus endeth the journey. A newborn baby is searching for food within the first hour of its life. The quest begins that early. The desire, the journey, the consumption, the satisfaction. It's not a learnt trait. This is something innate within us. And it's actually not something we can fully relent of, is it? We can't not consume. So what is it about consumption that we need to lay down? In Luke chapter 12, Jesus introduces us to the rich fool. Jesus says, The ground of a certain man yield an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have plenty of crops and no place to store them. Now, just to note how he ended up with all this extra surplus. It says, the ground yielded him an abundance. Note how specific Jesus is about how he ended up with all this extra stuff. He just found himself at the right place at the right time with the right ground and the right soil. And now he has more than he needs. Then he says, oh, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And then I'll say to myself, you have plenty. You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But then God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. The key to understanding this parable is in the warning Jesus offers in the beginning at verse 15. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. This is not what life's about, Jesus says. The word greed could also be translated as covetousness. An immoderate desire for the world's or another's goods. So this is not about the feeling of hunger, which is a desire. This is about an excessive desire for possessions, stuff, wealth, status. We read a lot about this concept of a fool when we spend time in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. A very specific style of writing that has characters in it such as the wise, the fool, the sloth, etc., And there's a voice of the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. And in chapter 2, he says this, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs for water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. 
I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In, and in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. And he reflects in Ecclesiastes 5. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or whether they eat much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. The repeated pattern we see here is that those that focus on wealth or possessions and consume in the hope of quenching some kind of desire will never be satisfied. The rich fool wasn't satisfied with a full barn. He had to tear it down and build a bigger one. The teacher indulges in everything this world has to offer. And at the end, he determines it just doesn't satisfy So is the answer to this to simply restrict ourselves to just having enough? Do we need to focus on ensuring we never get to the place of having surplus? Unfortunately, this concept didn't seem to work for the Israelites in their desert years. When the Israelites are rescued from Egypt and led out into the desert, their hunger prompts them to cry out to God. The Bible says they grumbled. Or if we were to write it today, I'm sure we'd say they were hangry. Initially, they cry out to God. And in Exodus 16, we read of God's gracious provision of manna. Each day, God would provide enough food for them to gather what they needed. Some would gather little, some would gather not much. But what we read is that they always had just enough. In theory, they were satisfied each and every day. But of course, they get a little tired of this, don't they? They become frustrated and dissatisfied by this gift of manna. They again grumble to God saying, we remember how good we had it in Egypt. I mean, all the food we could eat, fish and cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and um, garlic. Oh, the variety. It was so good. Now, of course, things in Egypt weren't good. We remember that only a few chapters before they were in slavery and crying out to God for being stuck in slavery. And God triumphantly rescues them out of that dire situation. And they kind of have this selective memory loss, don't they? God's good gift in manna becomes not enough. And they desire something more. So we can't relent from consumption altogether. We need to eat. We need to purchase things. But what I believe these verses point to is to let go of insatiable consumption. The desire for more, bigger, better, newer, flashier. The restless state of things that are just never enough or never good enough. 
the tendency to store up and hoard all our surplus, the attitude that when I have this or when I have that or when I achieve this, then I'll be happy, then I'll be satisfied, eat, drink, be merry. The Bible warns that money and stuff will never satisfy and will be a thirst that will never be quenched. But there are two more types of consumption that I believe we need to relent of. As I mentioned earlier, one of the key principles of our economy is this idea of competition. It begins in school, doesn't it? I still remember the day I found out that the UAI, the University Admissions Index, was not in fact a mark out of 100. It was a rank. Therefore, no matter how many people in the state got 100 out of 100, there would only be a few people that got a UAI of 100. And everyone in the state was going to be ranked 1 to 10,000 or whatever it is. It's the same thing with this idea of the bell curve. You know how they talk about the bell curve? That basically only a few people can get an F, only a few people can get an A, but most people have to kind of get Bs and Cs, maybe a few Ds. And it's this idea of competition. The implications is that my success or failure directly impacts your success or failure. There isn't enough A's to go around so we compete for the few that are available. When it comes to the price of milk or the price of a house, competition is helpful and necessary. However, when it comes to your success or my success, when it comes to your level of happiness, your status, your family situation, your your possessions, competition is soul-destroying. Why do we sometimes struggle to rejoice in someone else's happiness? Because we have this strange idea that maybe their success automatically means my failure. Like maybe there's not enough goodness to go around, so I'm a bit concerned when things are going great for you because maybe that's going to have an implication in terms of the bell curve on me. So what we do is we kind of exist under this idea of scarcity. There's not enough to go around. There's only a few things that each person can have. And so we start to grapple for what's ours. We grapple and hold on to our stuff because there might not be enough. And it kind of reminds me of the moment a piñata cracks open at a birthday party. You know that moment? Finally, the dad, because the kids have not been strong enough to actually do it, cracks it open and all of a sudden there's a frenzied stampede. The kids rush in and they're grabbing and they're stuffing and they're holding and they're hoarding and they're grabbing off another kid and they're snatching. And then when their arms are so full and their pockets are overflowing, they run, don't they? They run from the scene because when the dust settles and everyone looks around, there's all of a sudden going to be a moment of like, well, why do you have so much? And why does Jimmy not have enough? And Why is Ben crying and who had that lolly snake first? Because why are you screaming and fighting over it? And it is mayhem. The bursting of the piñata sets off a panic of competition and scarcity. And the result is inequity. It's never fair. The bigger, quicker kid is always going to get the most. 
Contrast this with the distribution of lolly bags at the end of a party. No one grabs, no one snatches, no one scrambles, no one's in a panic. There's this understanding that there's enough to go around, that their turn will come, that there's a bag in that parent's hand with their name on it, with with items packed just for them. It's an undeserved gift filled with things that bring joy and spark gratitude. See where I'm going? Don't settle for the idea of a scarce God. God is a God of abundance. There's enough to go around. And the thing that hinders this is when we're closed-handed and when we're stingy and greedy and competitive. When we don't take care of the lost and the last and the least. When we don't give to those in need. When we don't take care of the orphans and the widows. We need to let go and relent of inequitable consumption. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 6 to 11 says this. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. And the last type of consumption I believe we need to relent of is excessive consumption. This is probably the most obvious one. Excessive consumption might look like eating too much, drinking too much, loving money, buying too many clothes, using too much power, driving your car too much, throwing too much away, going on too many indulgent holidays, upgrading your car, phone, house technology too much, or without careful consideration, and the list goes on. What I haven't touched on is what constitutes too much. For those that want a list of do's and don'ts, I don't have an answer for you. I don't have an answer for what energy consumption um, represents um, kind of good resourcefulness based on your household and good stewardship for you. I can't tell you whether a hole in your jeans is big enough to constitute buying a replacement pair. This is a matter of the heart. Are you fostering a heart of self-control, of gratitude, of generosity? Does your heart resist laziness, envy, gluttony, and selfishness? Is your heart's desire to be found complete in Christ? I wonder which of these you need to let go of most. Insatiable consumption, a constant desire for more, more, more. Inequitable consumption, a feeling of scarcity and competition when it comes to what you own. Or excessive consumption, a habit of consuming more than you should. 
And with our newly empty hands, what are we going to pick up? Contentment. Paul says in Philippians 4, For I have learned what to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Contentment is not about what you have, but it's about your conclusion about what you have. It's a certain perspective. It's a matter of the heart. It sees everything as a gift, not a right not wages, not deserved or earned. Contentment sees everything and sees past it to the giver of the gifts, God's abundant and never-ceasing grace. Contentment always sees the present, all-loving, all-powerful, abundant God as the giver of everything good in life. Contentment knows that God doesn't deliver or delight in suffering, but has the capacity to use it for good. Contentment knows that God is our ever-present help, ready to bring comfort, strength, peace, and hope. When we're content, we don't have an insatiable desire for the things of this world. When we're content, we share what we have and give generously to those in need. When we're content, we are thoughtful, measured, and prayerful in what and how we consume resources. So how can we pick this up? How can we find the secret of contentment? Well, like anything good in life, we have to cultivate it. We have to find ourselves in places and doing things that grow this within us. I'm going to suggest three habits that we can participate in to cultivate contentment. One habit of the head, one habit of the heart, one habit of the hands. So the habit of the head, I'd suggest, is probably the most obvious when it comes to the issue of consumption, and that's fasting. The reason I'd classify this as a habit of the head is because it creates a physical prompt to set our mind on things above. Fasting puts our body into a state where we're humbled before God. The Bible warns in numerous places about the danger of being well-fed and satisfied. In Deuteronomy 8, 12 to 14, it says, When you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flock grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fasting is a way of intentionally and purposefully not consuming, denying your body a desire, which is usually food, in order to keep your mind set on God, to remember him. And from this state, you pray more. You allow your heart to be aligned with God. You're propelled and prepared for God's good works. The habit of the heart that I believe fosters contentment is eating with others, 
sitting alongside people, sharing food, providing food for others, and taking time to have life-on-life moments connects us deeply with one another. We begin to share in the good and the bad. We listen. We talk. We're able to see God in other people's stories. What better way to let go of being competitive and stingy than to share a meal and your life with others? And the habit of the hands that I want to challenge you in is being with the least of these. Contentment is found in plenty and in want. Contentment is cultivated as we practice seeing and being present with those who are in want. Those in poverty, the sick, the dying, the elderly, the widows, the addicted, the abused, the forgotten, the marginalized. Jesus says in Matthew 25, 40, that whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. When you fed the hungry, clothed the naked, invited the stranger in and care for the sick, you do this in service directly of Jesus. Being with the least of these has been a hallmark of Christianity since the beginning. It's how the the early church made their mark. They were known for how they cared for those in need. This is not about a program. This is about meeting, coming alongside, being with, understanding and serving those who are in need. This practice of the hands is a key part of following Jesus and it's going to impact how we consume, isn't it? To see people in in need regularly and have life-on-life moments with those with the least of these I can almost guarantee that our insatiable, inequitable and excessive consumption will begin to be replaced by a heart of contentment and gratitude. Now with this one, I'm going to confess that this is on my agenda for this year. I preached a sermon last year about compassion and I felt deeply called to find a way to be with the least of these. And so I'm going to put it out there and say... I need help or advice or people to come alongside me. If this sparks something for you, please, please come talk to me. Whether you know of a way that you think this can be done really effectively or whether you want to be one of the people that also puts this practice of the hands into play, come and talk to me. It's on my agenda for this year. I'm going to find a way to cultivate being with the least of these. But what about you? That might not be the one that sparks something for you. Which habit of the head, heart or hands do you need more of in your life in order to find this elusive contentment? Is it fasting? Is it eating with others? Or is it being with the least of these? Let's cultivate and pick up contentment as we set aside our unhelpful practices around consumption. Let me pray. Abundant, gracious, loving God, the giver of all the good things in life, we want to confess to you our unhelpful practices around consumption. It is too easy to consume more than we should. It's too easy to consume in a way that's competitive, that consumes at expense of someone else. 
And we know that especially as we compare ourselves to others and we look to the world as our reference point, that we're going to end up in a state where nothing ever satisfies, where we're on a treadmill running towards nowhere, where no amount of possessions, no amount of status, no amount of money is ever going to fill that void. We're never going to have our thirst quenched. God, we recognize that in your word, you warn us about this. You talk about how when we're well-fed and satisfied that we forget God. We want to remember you. We want to remember who you are. We want to be so close to you and your heart that we don't see what we have, that we don't care about what we've got or what we don't have, but that we constantly have our eyes fixed on you. I pray that we would cultivate contentment, that we'd be intentional about what we do, about how we find ourselves in a place where contentment grows and consumption disappears. I pray that you would remind us this week of the ways that we can be on our guard against insatiable, inequitable and excessive consumption. Help us to relent of that and to cultivate and focus on contentment in our lives, the type of contentment that can only be found in you.